In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, this is message number two of Greater Expectations. The uh, the phrase obviously came from Great Expectations, Charles Dickens' novel, in which we have Pip, the little orphan boy, who has great expectations for himself because he runs into some money, meets a beautiful young lady, wants to become a gentleman so he can marry her, and life's going to be good, and he's no longer going to be an orphan boy. Um, but along the story, Pip discovers that the expectations he had of being a wealthy gentleman was not what he thought it would be. It was disappointing. And along the way, the reader's expectations for Pip also collapse. And he ends up basically living back where he was raised and finds himself happier not pursuing that life. In the Bible, too, as we just read, we are full of great expectations for humanity. As we saw last week, that God creates us with a dynamic nature, which is made to ever keep on progressing and becoming something. Um, but by page three, bottom of page two, really, in my Bible, um, Adam and Eve already messed this up. And our expectations for humanity are disappointed. Uh, and then we got a long book about how God is going to actually redeem and make the expectations we had for the man and the woman even greater uh, because he is leading us into what Adam and Eve were supposed to become. We get this in Christ. You have had great expectations for something you aimed for, worked for, hoped for, and were let down. The gospel won't do that to us. We can put all of our hope in what God says will happen and we can increase our expectations from him and will not be disappointed. Yet the way we live, because we've been disappointed by so many great expectations, is that we learn to stop having great expectations so that our disappointment isn't great. But with the gospel, we need not to restrict what God has promised to us, but we actually need to open our hearts more fully to the unbelievable and ineffable claims that he makes for us and promises to us. We need greater expectations than we've ever had. Because the only reason expectations disappoint us is because we were made to put all of our longing in Christ. And in Christ, our greatest expectations will be fulfilled. So we're revisiting some basic themes of the gospel. We looked at the creation of man last week. We're going to look at the fall tonight. The fall tonight. So I want to begin by talking about the tiny but mighty bark beetle. There is a chuckle in a room like this because we know what the bark beetle is, don't we? <laughs> Many of us had to see some beloved trees or had to pay for some wretched trees to be removed from our property. We've seen the transformation of the forest during that time. In the early 2000s, the bark beetle ravished forests in California. And actually, I found out, according to USC, that um, our mountain was actually the hardest hit in all of California by the bark beetle. And what they say is 114,000 acres of trees died. That is a massive swath of forest. Something so tiny but so mighty can wreak death and ruin. Um, bark beetles, I've, I've actually had an interest in learning a little bit more about them because as I'm taking kids on the trails at Thousand Pines and I'm 
teaching them botany. That's the favorite day for a lot of us is the botany day, um, teaching about trees. And then they're always curious about, you know, they, they'll they inevitably pick up a stick or a piece of bark in which you see those squiggly lines on them, the underside of the bark on the stick. And I'm like, oh, that's from a bark beetle. And and I had to tell them my limited knowledge. And I'm like, that's the time I find out a little bit more about the bark beetle. So here's what I found. It's kind of interesting. Um, you, so they, they, they attack pine trees, and the pine trees have bark on the outside, like all trees, and the bark is really tough, and the bark is meant to protect trees. But the bark beetle has developed a way to bore through the bark. So that's his job, is that he kind of weasels his way through the bark, and then he gets into the soft, uh, moist, really uh, nutrient-rich part that's right between the bark and the wood proper. And that, that little area is called the phloem. And what he does is he, he drills in through the bark and then he gets into the phloem and he begins to eat his way through the phloem. And, he, and that's where you see the little, little trails on the bark when you look at the inside of the bark. Uh, they eat their way and they lay, they do two things. They lay their, lar- their eggs along the way and then they also um, lay frass, which I found out is the technical term for bug poop. <laughs> so they're laying things all around. Oh, and by the way, they also bring in with them, they bring in fungi that's dangerous to the tree. So, like, they're in there eating, and they're creating a, a system of death for the tree. Um, now, when they lay their eggs, then, of course, the little larvae wake up. And, oh, by the way, the trails that you see on the bark, inside the bark, uh, those little squiggly trails, they're called uh, generations. And so um, these generations, because it's where they lay the eggs. And then the eggs, the, the little larvae wake up, and then they start making their own trails. And so they just go all over the place. So they start eating, too. And so soon, like, it's growing, right? Now... A healthy, a healthy, um, oh, by the way, the reason this is a problem is because, um, the trunk of a tree has, is a highway system for getting nutrients up and down the tree from the roots up and from the leaves down, right? Um, so there's two, there's a two-way highway. Uh, the xylem in the center of the tree is bringing sources from the roots up. But the phloem is bringing sources from the leaves down. And so when the beetles do this, they're destroying the phloem. And so they're essentially cutting off one of the highways of the tree so that nutrients can no longer come down. And that's what starts the slow death process. Now, all from a little bug getting its way in. Um, a healthy tree has absolutely no problem defending against a bark beetle. A healthy tree has sap inside of it, and it will it will use that pitch, that sap, and it will start bleeding it out through the hole which the bark beetle came in, and he's like, ah, no, and like this big goo kind of pushes him out, right? Uh, so a healthy tree can do that, and you can actually see some of the trees. You'll see little sap spots on them, and you'll know the tree's been trying to push them out. The problem is when a tree goes through drought or overcrowding, and it's not getting the nutrients it needs. So the tree is distressed, and the tree is weak. So it cannot produce enough sap to get the beetle out. Or this happens. The beetle gets in. The tree's not strong enough to resist the one beetle, so the beetle has success. He's able to lay the eggs, or she, whatever. I don't even know their gender, but who knows. They, they lay their eggs. And then the, the beetle's like, successful, bless you, successful break-in. And so what he does is he excretes a chemical called aggregating uh, pheromones, aggregate, ag- aggregating pheromones, something like that, yeah. I wrote it down somewhere. I don't care to find it. Um, and and that, that pheromone gets released, and the other beetle's like, you smell what I smell? 
feast time. And so they all come to where he's releasing these chemicals and they all start swarming. He's like, this is a weak tree. Get them. And so they all get them. Now the tree's completely overrun. It can't do anything about it. That's what happens when the bark beetle enters into a tree. So... Um, I want to look tonight at, thanks Tyler, it is dreadful. I want to look tonight at the fall, uh, as we read, um, because the fall is usually where we go. When we go to the fall, we, we were talking about sin. And when we talk about sin, we, we talk about the doctrine of original sin. You, have anyone heard of the doctrine of original sin before? This isn't, I don't need to go like over this too much. Um, Original sin basically refers to two things. It refers, first of all, to the fact that sin had an originating point. Uh, technically, it's not correct to say that Adam and Eve were part of original sin because the devil sinned before them. But I, I decided while studying that that's too much to get into tonight. So let's just, just to remember that, though. The devil brought sin into the cosmic world, not Adam and Eve. They were mimickers of him. They did what he wanted them to do. But another time, another thing. Um, but Original sin refers to the fact that there's a historical point in time in which a historical Adam committed an actual sin. That's what original sin on one hand alludes to. It actually happened. The other aspect of original sin is that Adam's sin and Eve's sin is to such that it has corrupted human nature ever since. So that every single person who is born is born under a condition, thank you to Adam and Eve. So original sin, a point in time sin happened, and now through all generations, the sin is passed on. The question what I wrestle with is, to what degree does the sin get passed on? And this is where I want us to just kind of take a pause and look at and say, can we have a greater expectation from the fall? Because here's what people will often say, and I'm a fool because I didn't write it down. I really, here, let me pull this up. Um, this is what happens when you are running out of time and you're making your notes. You forget things. Um, here's, here's how, um, what's his name again? Um, I am not good at doing two things at once, just so you guys know. Um, John Calvin and this thing stopped working on me. Okay. John Calvin puts it like this, if I can find him. Okay. He says that original um, sin, in the sense, how do we receive it from Adam? John Calvin, one of the biggest and most influential writers of the Protestant world, uh, says, hereditary corruption and depravity of our nature. So original sin is a hereditary corruption. You inherit it from your Great, 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 whatever, dad, Adam. Hereditary corruption and depravity of our nature extending to all parts of the soul, which first makes us liable to the wrath of God and then produces in us those works in which scripture are termed works of the flesh. So we inherit this depravity. We inherit this condition from Adam and it is to such a degree that we are liable to God's wrath. Uh, that's how John Calvin describes it and how many people describe it. They'll say that when we are born, we are born with Adam and Eve's sin imputed to us. I am born guilty and I am born condemned to hell because of what Adam did long ago. Okay. Um, 
Or we can say instead that the Bible actually never says that that happens. That that is a, that's a way to describe sin which we've con- conjured up through a long history that we can't get into. Um, we could simply say that the Bible does say we are affected by Adam's sin. Original sin's real. Adam actually sinned. And yes, humanity's affected by Adam. But are we actually guilty because of Adam? Or can we say that we're guilty because of our own sins? Can we say that we inherit not condemnation from Adam, but we inherit corruption from Adam? We inherit, in other words, a nature that has been weakened, but not a nature that has become full of sin, termed sin itself. That's what we're looking at. Does that make sense? What happened to our nature? Did we inherit a sin nature or did we inherit a weak nature? There's actually a lot of good people on both sides of this discussion. Unfortunately, one gets most of the attention, though. So why do we start with the bark beetle? Because the bark beetle is a tiny little thing that comes from the outside, boards its way in, and invades the tree. And eventually, if the tree cannot keep resisting the beetle, the tree will die. Do you know that's how the Bible describes sin? This is how James chapter 1, verse 13 puts it. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But rather, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Here James has this picture of the person has desires. When he gives in to these desires, he doesn't say it in these words, but he says that he conceives, which means he gives consent to these desires. The desires come in. You notice how James is using pregnancy picture here. They come in and then it births something in him. It grows something in him. So he is, he's enticed. He accepts the enticement. It now, because he gives his will and consent to it, it can come into him. And when it comes into him, it begins to grow. And if the human is not careful and does not resist or push out through the sap of God's mercy, grace, and the Spirit's work, then this will start to produce death. Sin, when it overruns a life, kills a person. Not just you go to sleep and never wake up death. We mean that you begin to live in darkness and your nature can, based on last week's idea of a dynamic nature, your nature can get to the point where you have sin as your only train of thought, desire, and action. And you start to become like sin. All right? This is what happens as we keep on letting the beetle, if you will, the sin enter into us. So... The way I like to think of this is that when Adam and Eve sinned, the human race was not overrun by sin in that moment. The human race was weakened. It was diseased. We got an illness. And the heart, rather than being strong and firm and able to to completely resist any and all temptation, the heart cracked in its weakness. And now sin, like the little beetles, has easy way in, and we don't have all the strength we need to resist it. So, um, at the fall, 
we lose the protective covering we had in fellowship with God. We lose the protective covering we had in fellowship with God. When we read Genesis chapter 3, there was one word that is mysteriously missing for a text so prominent for a doctrine like original sin. What word was never mentioned? Sin. Sin. We, we build a doctrine of original sin. We look at Genesis 3 and sin is never even mentioned. Now, that's not to say that Adam and Eve did not sin. They disobeyed God. That is sin. But what that does show us is that the author of Genesis, we believe being Moses, does not see this, the main point of chapter 3, as sin. That's not the main point of this chapter. The main point is that something happened to Adam and Eve in which they have now become weakened. Notice that the theme of this passage is actually death. That now, Adam, you're dust, and to dust you shall return. Now you're going to leave Eden. It's this, it's this idea of being cut off, a branch being cut off from its vine. Jesus said, right, that we must abide in him, for without him we can do nothing. Because what happens when you take the branch off the vine? Not immediately. It doesn't die immediately. You can look at that branch for a few days and have no idea that it's dead. But it slowly withers. It succumbs to death over time. And so does the human being detached from the safeguarding presence of God's communion. We're creatures. We only have life because the creator gives us life. And with the creator, we will live indefinitely. But without the creator, we are nothing. And we wither, we wilt, and we fade. And so Adam and Eve, in having to leave the creator... They are on the slow path to death or quick. It's all relative, right? It depends on how you look at it. Um, The emphasis on the story is not that they become immoral. It's that they become mortal. Did I say that? Yeah, immoral. It's that they become mortal. That's they want from immortal to mortal. They are going to die. Because of that severance from his life. This is not, by the way, this is not God saying, you did what? I'm cutting you off. We don't see that in here. Adam and Eve chose to commune and live with another creature. Rather than communing with God, they commune with the serpent. And what God is saying is, if this is what we do, we cut ourselves off from his life and die. So, um, this is how... You guys should know how much I love Athanasius of Alexandria. He says this in On the Incarnation. This then was the problem or the plight of men. God had not only made them out of nothing, but had also graciously bestowed on them his own life. And by grace, uh, he gave them his own life by the grace of the word. Remember Athanasius, as we gave an argument for last week saw that Jesus was in the midst with them at the garden. Um, So that's what he means by the word. Then turning from eternal things to things corruptible, like the tree of knowledge, by counsel of the devil, they had become the cause of their own corruption and death. Why their own cause? Because they detached themselves from the vine. Or in Genesis, it's the tree of life. For, as I said before, though they were... By nature, subject to corruption, the, all the earliest writers said that humanity could die at their beginning. 
We only didn't die because we were in the presence of the word. So we're, we're creatures. We're not, we're not eternal divine beings. We could die, but we didn't die because we were with God. So he's saying by nature, they were subject to corruption. The grace of their union with the word made them capable of escaping that mortality. Provided that they retained the beauty of innocence with which they were created. That is to say, the presence of the word with them shielded them from the natural corruption. So, as I said to you before we read that, in some, what Athanasius is saying is, we were not created eternal, we're creatures. But we would be eternal had we lived in communion with God. He shielded us from death. Death existed. But outside of his presence, nothing could stop us. We were cut off from the vine. So Athanasius is saying that there we go. We inherit, I'm, I'm now making a jump from Athanasius and making a logical uh, application here, um, that when we divorce ourselves from God like Adam and Eve did, what we inherit is a corruption. A corruption meaning death enters in our world, our bodies, and begins to break us down. And this breakdown is what weakens us against sin. A person that's desperately at the end of his rope that knows his time is short is more likely to reach for sin and to reach for things that make him feel good, especially one who is separated from the presence of God. So unprotected, our nature became wounded and weak. We became like a tree that went through a drought and can't resist the bark beetle. Our hearts, which were whole, became cracked. And now there's all kinds of ways the robber can get in and destroy. So I know you guys hear this a lot. We talk about human nature being a sinful nature. Um, I just want to point out that that is something we made up. Like that's not in the, it doesn't anywhere in the Bible say that we have a sinful nature. There is two translations at one verse that use the word sinful nature. The NLT, the New Living Translation, and the NIV both translate Romans 7.25 to read sinful nature. The word is actually flesh in the Greek. It's sarks. Always in every other place translated flesh. But for some reason, the translators decide to call it sinful nature. I think to just kind of connect with people's presumed understandings. It's not actually in the Bible. It never says we have a sinful nature. The Bible says we have a human nature. He made us man and woman. It's a nature that's human. We, if, if you think, oh, I don't want to get into that. Okay. Um, we have a human nature in which sin can participate with us. And this is the important thing of seeing that we have dynamic human natures, is that we aren't statically just God's people and in his presence forever and ever, or we're statically stuck in sin forever and ever, where dynamic can mold, change, and be transfigured or disfigured, so that we're human natures. And yes, you can decide to commune with sin over and over to the point that you look like sin. Your second nature becomes sin, which means you react in sinful ways, and you think in sinful ways, and you yearn and long in sinful ways. You can, on the flip side, through the grace of Christ, have a second nature which is like his where you same thing long for what he longs for think like he thinks and you react in the ways that christ would react that's what it means to have a dynamic nature but when we look around and see that how sin has taken over humans it's easy for us to say their nature is sin but if their nature is sin how then can christ take on human nature without himself taking on and becoming that sin or how can he um 
or you say, this is what people used to say, he became human in all things except for our sin. Except for our sin. Well, at what point did he become human? How fully did he become human? At what point do we say, he became human except for that part? Because if he didn't become fully human, then the full human is not united to his divinity. Well, okay, so he, he became human as Adam was human before the fall. Okay, so Adam and Eve are redeemed, but what about us? He has to become completely like us. It's that, if it makes sense, doesn't it? If we say our nature itself isn't sin, our nature is human. He takes on a human nature. There's no this distinguishing except for without sin. Because it doesn't, being human doesn't mean being sinner. Being human might mean being weak. And he takes our weakness and connects it to him. And we're healed. In Christ, we're healed. I'm sorry. That was a footnote in my notes. That meant go into it if you feel like it. So that was a little deep. Sorry. We'll come back. We're pulling up. Um, That's what I mean, by the way, by guys, by we don't have a sin nature. We have a human nature. Now, the human nature does play with sin a lot. But it's pliable. It's dynamic. It can also not do that and play with God. I know that's weird. Play with sin makes sense. Play with God does not. I'm sorry about that. Um, I also, you guys need to also notice here, um, Genesis 4 verse 7. That's the reason we went into the Cain and Abel story. is because we often stop there because the chapter breaks. But it's important to see that the story keeps going seamlessly. And that sin shows up here in 4 verse 7. When Abel is upset, bless you, or whatever that was, um, (laughs) Adam and Eve bring sin into the world, and their natures are now weak and cracked and corrupt. And so Cain and Abel have the same nature. It's weak, it's cracked, it's corrupt. And so sin, which once was not a problem, is now portrayed as a lion or some sort of a beast crouching, waiting to spring upon Cain. If you look at verse 7 again, 4 verse 7. If you do well, Cain, you will not, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, so he's asking, think about what you're about to do. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. And God says, but nothing you can do about it because you have a sinful nature and by default, you're doomed. He doesn't say that. He does not say, if this was the case of humanity, we should see this playing out from the beginning. But it's not. Instead, God invites Cain and he says, Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Did God say, I hope, I hope you can figure out, I, mean, he, I hope you can figure it out? He says, You must rule over it. Cain, you have the resources necessary to rule over and master sin. Notice also, sin is not inside of Cain. God doesn't come to kiss Cain and say, uh, something in your heart is lurking and you have, I, I mean, I wish I can get in there and change that, but not until Jesus comes. He tells Cain, sin is looking to get into you. It wants to pounce on you. This is something apparently has to be taught about. And then Cain is given the ability, or the invitation at least, to say, I am going to defend myself against this attacking lion. I'm going to defend myself against this foe. And God's giving him a chance. Strengthen yourself. Cain, I'm here. Call to me. Come to me. Commune with me. You haven't been doing it, which is why your offering was rejected. Here's your invitation, because something really bad is about to happen. So we see this playing out that Cain 
has a human nature and he's invited to commune with sin or to commune with God. Um, and the fact that it's outside him says it's not inherent to, inherent to who he is. It's foreign to who he is. It's external to who he is. He lets it in. Like James said, we must not let it to uh, conceive. We can't give consent to the thoughts that come to us. Okay. Why does this matter? I mean, I really wrestled with like, do does it matter to talk about a heavy doctrine like this? Because I never want to just like ramble about a doctrine because I find it interesting. And then other people like, I don't know if that's interesting because I'm not a theologian. Um, I say it because I think this matters in the way we live now. I think it affects the way we make choices and the way we set up our lives and the way we take Jesus's commands to fast and to pray and to give and to lay down our lives for our friends and to be a servant and all these hard things we're called to. They're not just ideals. That That's one way to read it. If we look at all this and say, well, we have sinful natures, but 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 Jesus is shielding us from, from you know, the, the terror that's going to come to our sinful nature and we're all good. We have grace. And I know I can't necessarily overcome sin because I can't really help it. I'm just going to do my best. And so all these things Jesus asks us to do are kind of ideals. Like if I one day woke up and had the power to overcome sin, then I would do these things. Or we look at everything Jesus tells us to do and we say, he is actually calling us like Cain to say, wake up, stand up. Sin is at the door. Your life is on the brink. And I am asking you to follow me, to obey me, to do these hard things I'm asking you to do, like take up your cross. Because if you don't, you're going to pick up sin and it will kill you. It's just a matter of how do you want to die? Do you want to die with me or do you want to die apart from me? Who's, whose death do you want to be part of? One leads to resurrection. The other leads to the second death, the eternal and final death. And this, this matters, right? This shows us. So... If we think there's nothing we can do about sin, then when we, we hear a pastor who's like, it's Advent, we should fast, then what we hear is, so I should like do works to get God to love me more or to like get on the ball or like to improve myself. Um, that's not what we're saying though, because we're not concerned with our past sins, which God forgives. We're not trying to make up for those. We're trying to protect ourselves against the sins we're going to encounter as soon as you leave this church. You know that's real. Like, oh, you just received communion? I'll make sure there's no life of God in you. That's the devil's tactic. Like, and then when you wake up tomorrow, first thoughts on your head. Do you battle thoughts? Like, how do we engage the day? How do we engage conversations? How do we engage the things we do with our time? How do we engage these things? Because with our dynamic nature, they are constantly calling us to commune either with sin or with Christ. And you are changed into one or the other over and over. One act will create a second nature within you. That's why this matters. So there are two stories that we can tell. Um, This comes from Andrew Luth. Uh, He talks about the two salvation arcs. One arc, an arc is like the, you guys are familiar with narrative terminology, story terminology. It's it's the shape of a story because they tend to arc. Like, it goes up, exciting, climax, and it comes down. Um, one arc is uh, the first and original arc, which we heard kind of, yes, 
last week, is that it's the ark from creation. This is who God made us to be. And, that, and our creation is meant to arc us up to divinity. We're supposed to be one with God. That's the first salvation ark. That's what God made us for. But then the fall happens and we say, okay, um, actually our story is we are fallen and we need redemption. We're fallen and we need redemption. That's the second salvation story. This is the story we all know very well. This is the salvation story we hear over and over and over. You're a sinner. You're fallen. You need redemption. So we follow this ark, but this is such a small ark, I hope you see. Fall is way after what actually God made us for. And redemption is way short of what God has destined us for. So the fall redemption arc is what we often live. And this is a lesser gospel. It's, a, it's right. It's not wrong, but it's not full. So what we do is we walk around and we're like, I've got the golden ticket. I'm going to God's chocolate factory <laughs> uh, because I was fallen and now I'm redeemed. And so we kind of sit around and we go, now what are we going to do as Christians? Just try not to sin, I guess. Um, but the actual bigger God's original salvation arc that we shouldn't forget is that he made us with this dynamic nature so that it can continually be transfigured to share in the glory and likeness of God, that there's something to continually progress into. And of course, as we said last week, like you can't ever actually reach the end of that. You're never going to wake up one day like, I am God. <laughs> heaven help you if you get there because you're probably on the wrong arc like you're on the other arc that's going downward um this arc is a massive one and if you've gone from the fall to redemption arc then it's time to join the new the bigger not new but the other bigger arc and say i've been created for great things i've been created for greater things than i've been living for i want to use my salvation to continually climb in to as Lewis would say, further up and further in into the life and glory and goodness and nature of God. Because my nature can become a second nature in his. Like, that's why Christ comes as a human. He comes in his full divinity and assumes our full humanity through Mary's own flesh. So it's not a cheap, it's not he's like a human. He is a human. Um, what happens in Christ, the union of these natures, is what happens to us. How are we doing with that? You're like, yeah, I mean, there's an eternity of growth I can go through. And exactly. Your salvation is just the start of the story. Like, there is so much we have to expect. This is the greater expectation we want to embrace. And it starts with realizing that God gives us power in his spirit to fight and resist sin. The reason we resist sin is not because God's mad at it. Someone got mad at me for saying that one time. Um, I just want to say the Bible nowhere says God's mad at your sin. It does say he doesn't like sin. That's very true. But he's not mad at you for it. Um, he knows that we're deceived. He knows that we're weak. That's what we mean by fallen. We're weak. We sometimes want to, but we can't, as Paul says in Romans 7. So what, it, what this does is it gives us the equipment to say, I'm not trying to avoid sin simply because God's mad. I'm avoiding sin because I recognize that when I do sin, I'm like that branch severed from the vine, and I don't do very well. I want to be connected to the vine so that I bear fruit and fruit and fruit. And you're like, what does that even mean? That just means like you are living to your fullest. We want to talk about the fullest life now. Don't listen to prosperity gospels. Listen to the gospel. 
It is calling us to this fullest life because you are meant to be united and connected to Christ. Sin is what sin is not something that comes and wedges us between him. Sin doesn't have the power to disconnect you from God. You have the power to disconnect yourself from God and to choose sin. This is why we resist sin. Because we have greater expectations than just, well, grace covers it. I'm just going to do what I want to do and sometimes do what God wants me to do. I need to stop ranting and finish. So here's what we need. Uh, We need sap. You want to be like a tree that can resist the beetle? You need sap. And if you know me, you know I don't mean literally sap. It's an acronym for what we do need. (laughs) We need to struggle. We need to struggle against sin. Now, some Christians feel discouraged because they're like, I'm always battling this. And when I hear that, it is like green flag. It's like, go, 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 buddy. You've got it because you are on the right path. If you find sin a struggle and you're resisting and you feel like it's constantly berating you, good job. It means you hate it and you dislike it and you're resisting it. Because the one who's given over to sin doesn't know the force of it. They don't know that they're in a struggle. Uh, as Lewis said, you don't know the force of something till you resist it. Then you know its strength. Struggle. If you aren't struggling... You are probably giving in. So we need to struggle against sin. And so this is why sometimes we try hard things like pray more or fast more. is because that's a struggle. If I'm putting myself through struggle, I'm also putting myself on a heightened awareness of where sin is misleading me. Uh, we struggle. We need attention. We need attention on our thoughts because sin originates with thoughts. This is where it comes from. We get ideas. You should go lust. You should go grab stuff. You should be mad and blow up. You should think really good about yourself and hope everybody else notices how much better you are than everybody else. These are all thoughts. You get these thoughts, right? You get a ton of really evil thoughts. And if you shared uh, them with us, we'd all like, ew. Actually, if we're honest, like, I know I do that too. The thought is not sinful. The thought is not you. The thought is coming and being thrown at you, I think. I think the devil gives us thoughts. It's what we do with the thought that becomes ours. Do you own the thought? Does it become yours? Do you want it? Do you consent? give your consent to it? Does it then conceive sin within you? What do you do? Do you act on the thought? This is the struggle. So, this, But to the, the starting point is have an attention on your thoughts so that you see them before it gets to the point of wrestling with them. If you can identify, that's a bad thought. That is from, that's not from Christ. That's from something else. That's from the devil. If we can identify that, then right there, you are already struggling in sin and it's not even getting close to you. And so what we do is we pray. Prayer teaches us to think properly. It also, as we carry little prayers in our pockets, we say these prayers throughout the day so that we can recognize when things are definitely not those thoughts. They look very different when you have prayer in your mind. So we encourage arrow prayers. We've talked about this many times. Uh, one of the most popular in all of history is the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because here's what can happen. You can be really tempted. You're an alcoholic. You're struggling. You're a Christian, but you're still struggling to overcome this. Um, you're drawn to that bottle. And I, I've, I've read a testimony where that person started praying the Jesus prayer. It took him like 15 minutes maybe but he kept praying the prayer until he stopped thinking about the bottle and he overcame. Because you cannot sin when you're in true prayer. Because the minute you sin, you're no longer connecting and communing with God. Right. If you're in true prayer, you're not sinning. So pray, be attentive to your thoughts so that you don't say yes to them. 
So that struggle, that's attention, and then P, prayer. We just covered it, so that's P, prayer. Keep praying. Um, guys, in Christ, we have the power to resist the sin Cain gave into. He gave into it, but we have the power to resist it. We are not resigned to live out of some sinful nature and just sit there and say, this is who I am because the preachers tell me that, and I'll just wait till God delivers me. I literally had that thought at one point in my life, wrong point in my life. We are not victims of a fall. Yes, it happened, but God has said, you still have me. Uh, so we are, yes, we're corrupted, we're weakened, we're wounded, but we find healing and strength in Christ. That's what we need to know. This is why I need to keep fleeing to him, keep going to church, keep fellowshipping, keep reading scripture, keep praying, because sin is real and it is active. It's active. We must be active with Christ in response. Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us for your good and you love mankind.